Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Communities of Compassion, Then and Now. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 15, 2012. After a period of doubt and disbelief following the execution of Jesus, and despite threats from the Jewish and Roman authorities, his followers became convinced, as we read in the book of Acts, that God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. These unschooled and ordinary followers of Jesus proclaim their message with courage and boldness. In Jerusalem, converts joined the movement in mass, first 3,000 people, then 5,000. And in the readings for this week, Luke's description of this emergent Jesus community helps to explain the appeal of their message and its consequent expansion. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was with them all. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. A few pages earlier, Luke described a similar sort of primitive and voluntary communalism in Acts chapter 2. <coughs> and notice how Luke bookends his narrative about the acts of the early believers. The first page of his narrative begins in Jerusalem. On the last page, the Jesus story has spread like wildfire to Rome. An obscure Jewish sect has now challenged a global empire. But how? Luke emphasizes the signature characteristic of the Jerusalem believers. In a single word, generosity. Their social generosity expressed itself in community, and their financial generosity expressed itself in compassion. Rome boasted many things. Military domination, economic power, political peace, a system of carefully engineered roads and spectacular architecture. But genuine community and human compassion were more radical and powerful than all these glories of Rome. The first Christians broke down social barriers. They disregarded religious taboos that distinguished between the ritually clean and the unclean the worthy and the unworthy, the respectable and the disrespectable. They were one in heart and mind, 
writes Luke. They subverted normal social hierarchies of wealth, ethnicity, religion, and gender in favor of a radical egalitarianism before God and with each other. In the words of Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Their financial generosity expressed itself in compassion toward the needy. Indeed, a few pages later in his account, Luke describes famine relief efforts. This reputation for financial generosity and compassion still resonated three centuries later. The pagan emperor Julian the Apostate, who ruled from 361 to 363, and who vehemently opposed Christians and stripped them of their rights and privileges, acknowledged, quote, The godless Galileans feed not only their poor, but ours also. Those who belong to, to us look in vain for the help that we should render them, end quote. Some people dismiss Luke's descriptions of social and financial generosity as a utopian dream that's impossible to live. That's just not true. Many believers have lived this dream, as Gary Wills observes in his book, What Jesus Meant. The monastics, the first Franciscans, the Shakers, Catholic workers, worker priests, base communities in Latin America in Christian communities like Jonah House in New York. Consider these two snapshots, one ancient and one modern. A generation after the first believers, the Greek Christian Aristides practiced philosophy in Athens. It's tempting to wonder if he was a convert from Paul's ministry in Athens that Luke describes in Acts 17. The scholar Jerome in the 4th century tells us that Aristides presented his apology on behalf of Christianity to Hadrian, the emperor of Rome, from 117 to 138. <coughs> in his apology, Aristides <coughs> contrasts four classes of people, barbarians, Greeks, Jews, and Christians. Listen to his description of believers in the early 2nd century. It's long, but it bears attention. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother, and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. And whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not to others. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they do not eat, for they are pure. And their oppressors they appease and comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. And their women, O king, are pure as virgins, 
and their daughters are modest. And their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness in the hope of a recompense to come in the other world. Further, if one or other of them have bondmen and bondwomen or children, through love towards them they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, <coughs> but brethren after the Spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to their needy lack of food. So less than a century after the first believers, an Athenian philosopher bore witness to their community and compassion before the Roman emperor, Hadrian. And now fast forward to Namibia in southern Africa. During Lent, I read a booklet of daily meditations published by Episcopal Relief and Development. One daily reading described a so-called mobile hospice ministry in Namibia run by the Anglican Mothers Union. Namibian women traveled from village to village, from home to home, to minister to people dying from HIV, AIDS, and malaria. Brian Sellers writes in Lenten Meditations 2012, These mobile hospice workers provide basic first aid, binding up wounds, guiding cups of water to the lips of God's children with little time left on earth, holding and hugging those ravaged by the scourge of disease and isolation. This, in fact, sounds like Luke or the philosopher Aristides. The early church wasn't perfect, not by a long shot. After depicting their social and financial generosity, Luke describes Greek Jews complaining about the Aramaic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The eventual influx of Gentiles in what amounted to a Jewish sect wreaked havoc, and Paul describes factions in Corinth. But at our best, back then and now, the followers of Jesus have a public reput reputation for community, 
in compassion. For books this week, I review Colin Murphy, God's Jury, The Inquisition in the Making of the Modern World, New York, Holton Mifflin Harcourt, 2012, 310 pages. Today it goes by the name Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. But for 700 years, until 1908, it was known as the Congregation of the Inquisition. <clears throat> the secrecy, the policing of the faithful, and the bureaucratism continue under a new name today, but give credit where it's due. In 1998, none other than Joseph Ratzinger opened the 35,000 volumes of the Inquisition to archives to scholars. Murphy's book is one of the many that have benefited from this new level of access and scrutiny. What we call the medieval Inquisition began in the year 1231, when Pope Gregory IX established inquisitors of heretical depravity as papal agents. At the time, that meant primarily the Cathars in southern France. Then, King Ferdinand of Aragon and Queen Isabella of Castile merged the power of throne and altar on what we know as the Spanish Inquisition of the late 15th century. Established in 1542, it featured the Index of Forbidden Books, the Expulsion of Jews, and the Inquisitor General Thomas de Torquemada. Its last execution took place in 1826. Then there's the Roman Inquisition of the 16th century, which targeted Protestants and is famous for the trial of Galileo. Beyond these three major inquisitions, when Spain and Portugal conquered lands in the New World, they exported the Inquisition there too, to Mexico City, Lima, Manila, Cartagena, Goa in India, and Santa Fe in what became America. Today, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith still has its weekly meetings. What makes Murphy's book interesting is that he argues that the Inquisition is not a bygone relic of an irrational pre-modernity. In his view, the inquisitorial impulse lives on in many secular counterparts. Italian fascism, the French Revolution, Germany's Third Reich, East Germany's Stasi, Russia's gulags, Britain's four million closed-circuit televisions, J. Edgar Hoover's files on 25 million Americans, one out of eight citizens in torture at Guantanamo. Such recurring behaviors, says Murphy, results from what he calls unswerving confidence in the rightness of one's cause, and is enabled by bureaucracy, communications, surveillance, and censorship. So, yes, there's much to lament in the Catholic Inquisitions, but Inquisitions of various kinds are re are a recurring and inescapable feature of modern life. Inquisitions advance, he writes, hand in hand with civilization itself.
Colin Murphy, God's Jury, The Inquisition in the Making of the Modern World. <clears throat> For film this week, I review The Help from the year 2011. This movie is a dramatization of the best-selling book of the same title written by Catherine Stockett. The story shines a harsh light on the overt racism in Jackson, Mississippi in the early 1960s, where Stockett, in fact, was born and raised. Abilene is a black maid who's raising her 17th white child. Skeeter is a young college graduate who aspires to be a writer rather than to participate in the ladies' bridge clubs and fundraiser. In fact, she convinces Abilene, her fellow maid Minnie, and eventually many other maids in Jackson, to tell what it's really like to endure the hypocrisies and humiliations of working as a maid. Like caring for the kids every day, but not being trusted enough to polish the silver. Or being prohibited from using the same bathroom. The whites are outraged by the book, while the black maids find power and liberation in telling the truth through their own stories. Parts of this movie are painful to watch. Other parts are just petty and despicable. But that's what life was like back then and there. The Help from the year 2011. <clears throat> And finally, for the first Sunday after Easter, we've posted a poem by George Herbert, 1593 to 1633. It's called Easter Wings. Lord who createst man in wealth and store, though foolishly he lost the same, decaying more and more till he became most poor, with thee, O oh, let me rise, as larks harmoniously, and sing this day thy victories. Then shall the fall further the flight in me. My tender age and sorrow did begin, and still with sickness and shame thou didst so punish sin that I became most thin. With thee let me combine, and feel this day thy victory. For if I imp my wing on thine, affliction shall advance the flight in me. George Herbert, Easter Wings. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 15th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.